Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on today's show, why is China buzzing Canadian and Australian planes? The Dutchman accused of cyberbullying British Columbia teen Amanda Todd is in court. Could Canada follow the EU and force tech producers to pick just one charging format? And food banks really feeling the pinch as the price of food soars. Well, last week, we talked about, I think you can only call (laughs) pretty reckless and provocative behavior by Chinese military pilots in what we're told are international waters. Canadian pilots and Australian pilots monitoring uh, the UN sanctions on North Korea have reported these Chinese fighters coming within like 20 feet of their surveillance planes, close enough that they can clearly see when, get this, the Chinese pilots are giving them the finger. Mid-flight. So what's going on? Why are they doing this? We're going to have a conversation about that with Margaret McQuaig-Johnson, a senior fellow at the University of Ottawa's Institute for Science, Society and Policy and the University of Ottawa's Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. Uh, Ms. McQuaig-Johnson, thanks so much for your time. appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for inviting me, Shay. So this this behavior, obviously, on the surface, I mean, you hear it, it sounds shocking, really inflammatory. Um, are, are, are we missing something? Is this sort of expected behavior from analysts, or is it completely out of what you would anticipate being normal behavior? Well, it's certainly not normal behavior for most countries, um, but we've seen in the last five years that China is becoming more and more aggressive, and uh, it's it, certainly we saw that with the, the detentions and trade sanctions against Canada. Um, they've made aggressive actions against their neighbors, uh, taking land from India and Bhutan and overfishing in the waters of other countries. And it's really as if Xi Jinping thinks that to be a superpower, he has to project a fierce identity. But in fact, he would uh, get a lot more done, I think, if, I mean, more effectively if he uh, led as a collaborator like his predecessors did. Okay, so this is... You know, sort of a, a continuation of, I guess you could call it aggressive, certainly pr- provocative behavior by the Chinese regime. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's one more ramping up. It's adding right. another dimension to this aggressive behavior. And I think there are two reasons that they're doing this now. Uh, one is that they have been uh, saying that uh, the East China Sea is their territory, same with the South China Sea. Uh, but this is the East China Sea, and so they're they're saying to Canada, um, this is our territory, you don't have a right to be here. Right. Uh, Canada and the UN see this as international territory, and Canada and the US and uh, other countries have been asked to monitor um, the trade sanctions, and so we have every right to be in that airspace. So explain that to me. How can there be this kind of 
dispute around what are international waters and what are Chinese territory. I mean, how can there be this? Because it, it, it's a pretty wide area that we're talking about here. It's not like it's, you know, a, a small adjustment. It, it's a pretty big area. How, how, how does that dispute come around? Well, um, for some time now, China has uh, asserted that it has jurisdiction over Taiwan and certain islands off Japan and South Korea, and also uh, even stretching to the Philippines. And so this is another another uh, dimension to this assertion that they've been trying to make, which uh, they're getting pushback from other other countries, but. Still, they're trying to exercise, you know, kind of like um, elbows, sharp elbows up. Um, in the South China Sea, they've been doing this by building up the islands um, with their military infrastructure. Um, but there's another reason as well that they could be doing this, and that is that it may be possible that they are, in fact, supporting North Korea right. by importing and exporting products that they're not supposed to under the UN sanctions and they don't like people watching that and watching for it and they certainly don't want to be caught out doing it so pushing away uh, Canadian aircraft it could be one reason that the, uh, that they're doing that do we have any other evidence or information that tells us that that might be what is at the heart of this and it's not really over territory it's over the fact that they are assisting North Korea and they don't want to as you say be caught doing it well, we know more broadly they've been helping North Korea economically and uh, financially. Um, and, you know, North Korea is an autocratic country, and they're becoming closer to other autocratic countries like uh, Russia and um, uh, Saudi Arabia and, uh, and uh, you know, Venezuela. Uh, so this is perhaps another uh, signal that, uh, that, you know, they're, they're uh, you know, helping uh, North Korea tangibly uh, with exports and, and imports. In the past, back in um, the uh, 2000s, uh, China itself had sanctions against North Korea because it was um, uh, with conducting missile um, launches, as, as you described. But, uh, but we have a new regime in China now that's much more aggressive and much more friendly to other autocratic countries, which doesn't mean that they're allies of China. China doesn't have friends and allies. They have um, vassal states that are supposed to do what they're told. They have um, markets for their products, and they have countries that they can use. Um, and so, uh, you know, North Korea uh, is probably one of those. The risk here, obviously, uh, is is enormous, and and not even if it's you know an actual um, deliberate act. It's more likely when you've got planes in this kind of proximity that an accident could happen, and we could have an international incident just like that. That's right, and in fact, I'm seriously concerned that that's what China is setting up, because they say that there will be grave consequences if there's an accident and Canada would be at fault and they're accusing uh, Canada, the US, Australia of being in Chinese territory and um, and so it's possible that they're laying out a plan for if there's an accident their immediate go-to line will be that it's our fault. Hmm. 
So what's the what do you anticipate happening next? Like the UN, Canada, Australia can't say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna back off, we're gonna stand down, we're gonna stop the flights. Um, what comes next? Well, um, Canada says it's going to be raised at the Security Council. Melanie Jolie, our foreign minister, said that. We have a very, very strong ambassador at the UN, uh, Bob Ray, who is very principled and is, is frankly, the, the strongest ambassador we've had in, in years, many years, and strongest at the UN among all his his colleagues. Uh, so I think he's, he's likely very proactive on this. Um, and the government, uh, the Prime Minister, has said this is a UN mission uh, and uh, Canada stands up for uh, its actions and China is being irresponsible and provocative. And so we'll continue to object to these actions and we'll, uh, we'll be having discussions with our own friends and allies. Uh, we have to collaborate with a lot of other countries in order to push back effectively and neutralize China. We can't do it alone. Um, in the, you know, when we had the detention of the Michaels, uh, Canada led a declaration on arbitrary detention, uh, which got 68 other countries plus the EU, uh, all saying that the, this kind of action is wrong. And now, uh, Canada's developing an action plan with teeth to go behind it. And uh, so there are things like that that we can do uh, with our with our allies. And I'm sure there will be lots of uh, discussion of, of that kind of thing. And in the meantime, I'm sure that what's called Operation Neon, which this is this UN surveillance uh, initiative, will continue to go ahead. Uh, we can't just let North Korea uh, do what it wants on this uh, mon- you know monitoring is essential if we're going to enforce these sanctions yeah exactly i mean it, it has to be an international effort um ms mcquake johnson thanks so much for your time today i appreciate you joining us in bc supreme court uh a, a dutch man Uh, is on trial. He's pleaded not guilty to all charges in connection with the tormenting of British Columbia teen Amanda Todd, who ultimately took her life 10 years ago. It all started um, uh, way back in 2012 with her death. Now, he was extradited to Canada in 2020. He faces charges of extortion, possession of child pornography, communication with a young person to commit a sexual offense, and criminal harassment, okay? Um, The Crown alleges that this guy, uh, Aidan Coben, came into possession of explicit media that showed Todd bearing her breasts, okay? That's what it was. It was a picture of her bearing her breasts. He then got a hold of that picture, got a hold of her, and leveraged that, basically extorted her, blackmailed her, threatened to expose this unless she did more and more and more and more. Now, the Crown alleges he used all kinds of fake accounts to do this, and it lasted for years, ultimately driving her to the point where she took her own life in 2012. Scary, scary stuff. But unfortunately, I don't think it's all that uncommon to see this kind of activity happen. So we're going to get some insight here from Caitlin Mendez, an associate professor of sociology and the Canada Research Chair in Inequality and Gender. Caitlin, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me. You know, as disturbing as it is, and, you know, this case is putting a, a spotlight on this kind of activity, obviously, um, it's very common, this kind of activity, isn't it? 
Uh, it is. So of lots of activities that we're talking about here today, anything from receiving unwanted sexual images, from getting pressure to send sexual images, and to these cases like what we're seeing here with cyber stalking, cyber harassment, and sextortion. When we talk about this, the way that this case played out, it started with her taking a picture that, you know, admittedly she said was dumb. Um, but it was it was rather innocuous, you know, in her mind and her way of thinking. But the way it was leveraged and used against her, this pattern of escalation, is that common? Is that typically how this plays out? Um, well, it really depends on the circumstances. So I would say it's not that uncommon. So we actually call this image-based sexual abuse. And I think this is a new way. I'm actually really glad that you're kind of putting the emphasis here, not just on what she did and why it was so dumb, but about the ways that these images are shared non-consensually, that it was used as a form of, you know, targeted harassment, extortion against her. And I'm really, really happy to hear that the conversation is focusing on what he did. Of course, yeah. And not necessarily just on on what she did. But no, it's it's, um, certainly not that uncommon. So I've just completed um, a really large research study in the UK with a number of colleagues we were talking to high school students there and these sorts of practices you know even if it hasn't happened to students personally they absolutely know of people who it it has happened to and even in the research that we did so we did a survey of 556 young people we had um, anywhere between 13 and 30 young people tell us about these sorts of things so either where they had images that they took um, consensually that were then used against them for extortion or people who they call it honey trapping who were contacting them for the purposes of getting images that they would then try to use to extort them. Okay, so just to walk through, if people aren't familiar with the case, he got a hold of this picture um, mm-hmm. and then said, hey, I'm going to send, he actually did send it to his mo- her yeah. mom, um, he but he said, I'm going to send it to your school, I'm going to send it to all of your friends and all this sort of yeah. stuff, unless you do this. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can imagine being a kid and feeling completely trapped, so she did. And it just yeah. went on and on and on. Um, in, in, in that kind of a situation, did you have kids telling you that they've run into that as well? Obviously, uh, you know, we're, we're saying allegedly with this guy. We're not going to convict this yeah, guy. But sure. yeah, um, sure. in other instances, I mean, these, these people, it seems like this is pretty well rehearsed. They have a plan. They know what they're doing. It wasn't their first time. They weren't just making it up as they go. It seems like there's a, almost a playbook they're following. Exactly. So these are predators who are deliberately grooming and targeting um, young people. And I mean, there was even a case last week, a boy in the, in the United States who ended up taking his own life and he had the same situation happen to him where someone came online, pretended to be a young girl, sent him nude images, asked him for nudes in return, and then demanded money. And it wasn't a huge amount of money. But one of the things that I think is really striking about these cases is that young people rarely turn to adults for help. And one of the reasons why they don't turn to adults for help is because the message that they're constantly being told is only an idiot would send a nude image right. or don't send nude images. And one thing, you know, um, you know, I heard you just talking um, before about, you know, um, you know, parents are always warning kids, just don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Well, the reality of kind of the current dating situation is that young people do send nude or intimate images to each other. So if the message that they're getting is don't do it, then when they do do it and something goes wrong, they rarely ask for help. They try to deal with it on their own. So yes, we certainly had a number of young people who told us about um, self-harm, about cutting. Uh, We had one, because we also spoke to parents, we had one parent whose daughter attempted suicide, you know, kind of in light of all of these experiences. So... 
I think one thing that we really have to kind of move away from is this abstinence message. Right. You know, assuming that young people will never send intimate images of themselves. Obviously, as a parent, you know, I have kids. I'm hoping that, you know, my children, uh, I'd prefer it if they don't. But what I'd really like to do is prepare them for a world where we think about things like ethics and consent and ha- make sure we are clear to them that if you're ever in a situation like this, there are people that you can turn to for help. I hope my children will come and tell me if something like this happens rather than, um, you know, the worst case scenario, taking taking their own lives. Well, I mean, that's the thing. And you can imagine how they feel trapped. I mean, and you're right. We, I think we all know. We, we, we tell our kids not to do this, that, and the other thing, knowing full well they're probably going to do it anyway. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of the way we handle this as a society, as you say, we're sitting here talking about cyberbullying. Um, yeah. To me, that seems inadequate. I mean, cyberbullying covers a lot of other things. Not this. This seems yeah. more than that. I 100% agree. And this is one thing that myself and many, many other people argue is that what happened here is not cyberbullying. This is a targeted predator who is extorting young people, you know, a young woman, grooming someone, soliciting child pornography. Um, this is not cyberbullying. And in fact, I think there's, there's a big debate of, like amongst academics about is cyberbullying like a useful term? And I think the argument that most of us come to is that it is not. We need to start thinking about what's happening online in terms of the specific behaviors. And some of them are legal, some of them are illegal. Um, but rather than just grouping it all together and saying this is a form of cyberbullying, it's not. You know, this, is, this was illegal activity, this was predatory, this was harassment, this was um, extortion. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really happy happy to be having this conversation. Do we, often when it comes to technology and the internet and things like that, we're playing catch-up when it comes to law and legislation. Do we have the kind of laws in place to enforce this kind of, um, you know, criminal behavior and make sure that it doesn't happen? And when it does, we punish it properly. Because if if you and I are talking about cyberbullying and that's sort of what it's being called, uh, does the legal system look at it and say, no, 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 this isn't bullying. This this is absolutely criminal behavior that needs to be prosecuted. Yeah, the thing to remember is that the laws were created before the technology came into play. So there are very few laws that deal with this specific incident. I think in this case, uh, there's been able to kind of be a prosecution because it was an adult who was targeting a, a, you know, a, a minor. And so I think that when we have that cases of clear kind of age discrepancy, it's easier to prosecute. It is much, much, much more difficult to prosecute when it's two, for example, young people, two minors who are doing this to one another. So the laws are very different. Um, you know, often one of the laws that's actually used to kind of get justice for for victims, for example, who have images that are circulated online, is actually around copyright. So that's one of the laws that's kind of used the most to get images taken down. But that's really, you know, worrying that there aren't these laws that are that are there to regulate uh, digital spaces. And there's also a lot of misunderstanding about the laws and which laws are, are used. So in Canada, for example, we watch a lot of American television programs. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think young people are also getting, you know, um, they're they're getting they're getting uh, the wrong message. So they're being told, for example, that you know it's illegal for you to take an intimate image of yourself and send it to someone. Um, you know, if it's between two consensual parties, 
um, you know, you rarely get prosecuted. Sorry, if they're both within a similar age. If you're right. young and sending it to an adult, that's different. But if it's, say, two teenagers who are sending them sending each other intimate images, you know, they're not going to prosecute you. They're not going to charge you with child pornography as long as they can show that, you know, these images were consensually taken and shared. Uh, I mean, that makes sense. That's the way it's been with so many other things. It's when it gets into the wrong, when it's used the wrong way and i mean it's it's just it's a whole new, it really is a pandora's box caitlin and, and you can see how it can just go in so many different directions and uh it's 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 frightening is what it is yeah and it's a whole new world and i think what's the most challenging thing is that you know people who are from a an older vintage they don't understand the digital technology yeah. they don't understand how it works this isn't how they dated. This isn't how they related to other people. Um, and so that is like a really, really big issue is that the older people in, you know, in children's lives just don't understand the world that they're living in. And a lot of times they're terrified of it. You know? So even a, a, a platform like Snapchat, uh, which is where images are sent and shared to one another and they get deleted, this is something that a lot of parents know that their teens are using. They have no idea how it works. They don't maybe understand the risks involved. And then we also have the other end of the issue where young people, one of the things they generally won't tell their parents or teachers if something goes wrong, but they might report it to the platform. But these platforms have time and time again proven that they are not dealing with these kinds of issues. So they just kind of say, well, the image is gone. We can't do anything about it. So they rarely take action. And then young people learn, well, there's no one who's actually going to kind of vouch for me, who's going to support me. Or there may be other helplines, but they want anonymous helplines. They want helplines because they're scared that it's going to get back to their parents. Yeah. Um, and I think this is something we really need to be thinking about as a society. If we want young people to be coming forward, we need to be providing the conditions where they feel safe, where they feel as though they're going to be heard, where they maybe have a say in what happens next. And, you know, we have a long way to go in, in, in getting that. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, it really is uh, something that we got to try and get a handle on. Caitlin, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Not a big deal. It doesn't drive me crazy, keep me up at nights, but it certainly is an annoyance. And I've heard from a bunch of you on the text line and the phone line already today that you share the frustration. But the European Union announced on Tuesday that by 2024, there will be a, quote, single charging solution for devices, all devices. And that will be the USB-C socket. Okay, so this covers cell phones, covers tablets, e-readers, earbuds, digital cameras, headphones, headsets, video game consoles, speakers, laptops, all of it, all of it. There will be one charging socket, period, USB-C. And above and beyond that, they're also saying, hey, if you go and buy yourself a new phone or a new tablet or whatever, you know how it comes with a charger, you will now have the option of saying, you know what, I have enough chargers. I don't need another one. You keep it. Don't charge me for it. It'll eliminate waste, all kinds of things. It seems like a no-brainer to me. It makes sense. But some of you on the text line weighing in with reasons why you don't like it, 
Um, and there is counter arguments, but let's get into this a bit. We're going to have a conversation now with Tim Silk, who's an associate professor of marketing at the University of British Columbia. Tim, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, Jay. I love this idea. I do. I think it's uh, it's long overdue. But here's the question. Um, now that the EU has done this, do you think this is something that, that Canada will get on board with? Is this something, I mean, we're talking about what's happening in Europe, but doesn't mean it's going to happen here. Do you think there's a possibility now that it might? Uh, it might, but I don't think that the government would want to move alone here in terms of regulation. But yep. if uh, if the U.S. and Mexico were to move forward with it, then perhaps. That's the thing. I mean, Canada, in terms of as a market and market share, it's, just, it's not enough to move the needle on this by itself, right? Well, yeah, we're about 38 million people, but, you know, we want to move in lockstep with uh, with other countries on these types of things because, you know, it's a balance between, you know, having competition in the market, but also doing what's good for consumers. And mm-hmm. I, I agree with the direction that he's going. Uh, but if we did this alone, it would be very difficult, uh, I think, because a lot of companies would be like, well, why would we change to a different platform for, for just one small country? Is the EU big enough that if you are one of those companies, you're taking a look at it? I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions of people in the EU. Would that be big enough to have them say, you know what, oh, let's just do this right across the board. This is the way we're going to do now. Or are they going to set up a, a European division and it's going to be different for everybody else? Well, that's why you have the EU. This is really the role that governments are supposed to play, right? They're supposed to act in the best interest of, of society. And so the EU is roughly about 450 million people. And, uh, you know, if Germany were to do it alone or England were to do it, I shouldn't say England, uh, France were to do it alone, it would be difficult. But that's precisely why the EU has banded together. And, uh, I mean, most of these multinationals are going to have divisions um, in, in each country anyway, or they might have several divisions in Europe. Um, so it's, it's actually a good move for Europe and, uh, the organizations are going to have to comply or if they want to do business there. So yeah, they, they've got a lot of market pull. Yeah, um, no they're, question. They're bigger, they're bigger than the USA. Will they have opened the door perhaps and maybe put it on the radar for places like, you know, uh, I guess we call it North America, US, Canada, Mexico, where they'll now get on board seeing the momentum that's built here. That could be a possibility. Yeah, what I don't know is whether or not the regulators in Canada are, you know, talking with their uh, counterparts in the U.S. and Mexico, right, in terms of what level of coordination they have. That's outside of my knowledge, but um, it certainly is a leading indicator. I think what's also good is we can see how the market reacts, right? Mm -hmm. So if EU is going to do this first, why don't we wait and see what the outcomes are? And then if it seems like it's the right thing to do, then we can follow suit. But it would depend on the coordination between uh, Canada, U.S., and Mexico. Uh, Now, Tim, I I think I understand why we have so many chargers. To me, it's just because then they can sell us more chargers. It's just that simple. But are there arguments in terms of, well, this is a bad idea. You don't want everybody on the same system here. There's other good reasons why everybody needs to be different. Well, they want to be different because they want to have different capabilities. So I'm not a technical expert. So what I don't know is if you move to a USB-C, as they're doing in the EU, what constraints that puts on in terms of the capability of the devices. Now, we're all plugging in to the same power outlet in the wall uh, all over North America. Mm -hmm. So obviously something between that power outlet and what goes to your phone might affect what what they can do. Um, So I'm not sure how that works. But the firms aren't doing this just to make life complicated. They're doing this because they want to have certain capability in terms of the devices. And and that's good for consumers, right, to the extent that um, a, a phone or... Uh, some other device has some distinct capability that they value. 
And so while we want to make it simple for people, we also want to make sure that we're able to foster the next generation of devices in terms of them being innovative and doing what people want. Uh, does the does the power charger put big limits on that? I don't know. Um, what I what I'm curious about is whether or not the EU had consulted with technical experts in terms of why did they arrive at a USB C as opposed to other platforms. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, I think it would be good if we could simplify because you do have this proliferation of different systems and platforms out there. They're not doing that just to sell extra chargers. They're doing that because it's going to affect the capability of the device. And of course, there is a benefit that they can charge for that, but it's not this, you know, Machiavellian motivation there. It really comes down to what would allow the device to operate its best. Any pushback from companies on this? I know it seems to me like Apple is sort of the laggard on all of this, right? That's what it's focused on. I wouldn't say that they're a laggard, um, but they have definitely gone their own direction. Sure, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I there's talk in the press that this is targeting Apple and. I can't speak to that. You'd have to interview the people that are in the EU making those decisions. Um, but Apple does have a history of being less compatible. <laughs> yes. um, and, and you know, so, I mean, does Apple need to change if it's not in USB-C? Yes. Will they be happy about it? Probably not. They, they've, you know, not commented so far. Um, but I don't think this was really targeted to any one company. I think this is more just about, like, let's get on, get on a common platform here. And uh, and they've you know the regulators have chosen what they've done. It's interesting. I mean, can we look at other products where we've had to have government? I mean, some people on the text line saying, "Isn't this government overreach? Isn't this government getting involved in in free enterprise where they shouldn't be?" Or is there other instances where governments have come along and said, "You know what? Let's standardize this." Yeah, absolutely. If you look on the back of most electronics, there's a little symbol on the back that says CSA. That's Canadian Standards Association. Yeah. And that's a separate association from the U.S. And so I think the public needs to understand the government's not trying to meddle. The government's trying to make sure that there are standards that protect consumers. Some of that's safety-driven. Some of that is is just, you know, being common sense in terms of why do we have 15 different platforms up there. So, you know, this is precisely the role of governments. And people, you know, might obviously have different opinions in terms of how much government uh, intervention they want. But... Our, you know, our airlines are regulated for good reason, uh, right? Our electronics are regulated for good reason. Um, and so, you know, they're doing this to be well-intentioned. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And we'll see how it plays out. Like we see, this is, you know, the final decision won't be made for a while yet, but we'll be watching it closely. Tim, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. conversation and you know i mean it's just an update on a situation that we all know i mean if there's one story that you knew was going to be coming along it was this one unfortunately there's a new survey out that shows that a growing number of canadians are struggling to to you know deal with the rising cost of food not surprising right i mean it's it's a pretty sizable jump and you know uh, it's going to be tough for some people. But this poll from Food Banks Canada indicates that hunger and insecurity are increasing right across the country. Not surprisingly, lower-income Canadians are being hit hardest. But listen to this, some of the details. Almost a quarter of Canadians reported eating less than they should because there wasn't enough money for food. And that doubles for those earning under $50,000 a year. So you're talking about a remarkable a remarkable number of Canadians um, not eating as much as they feel they should be eating just because it costs so much right now. I mean, it's troubling, troubling information. We're going to chat now with Shauna Ogston of the Cal- of the Calgary Food Bank. And um, Shauna, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. 
Hello, thanks for having me. You know, I guess we shouldn't be surprised by this, right? I mean, we're talking about a 10% increase in food costs in one year, and obviously that's going to make things very, very hard for some people, especially lower income. Oh, definitely. I mean, the news is not surprising. Putting it out there and relating it to everyone. I mean, you look in the mirror, that could be any one of yeah. us. I know that my budgets are tight, and when I see gas prices go up, I think, oh, how is that going to affect you know, how much money I'm going to spend towards groceries? But what if that's a tipping point for someone? No, I think you're right, Sean. I mean, when we're talking about food prices, we're talking about gas prices, things like that. Really, they're unavoidable. I mean, those are the kind of things that you just have to bear that cost somehow. And that, you're right, that can lead to some really tough choices if you're you're right at that tipping point. Oh, definitely. I mean, the cost of housing, especially the majority of food bank clients are renters and there are less options for affordable housing. Those costs are going up. And when you look across the board, the heating costs, the fuel costs, Food is the one thing that can be cut in a budget, and unfortunately, we are seeing that every day, and now we have the stats to prove it. Almost 25% of Canadians reported eating less than they should because of food insecurity. One in five saying they've gone hungry in the last year because of food insecurity. Has, has that Have we ever hit numbers remotely close to that before in this country? You know, that's something we haven't measured specifically. And I actually, when I hear that and I talk to other food banks across the country, we're not surprised and we actually thought the number would be higher. Mm. We hear from people every day on the phone because they're reaching us when they're now at a food crisis. There's nothing in the fridge and they're foregoing breakfast so that their kids can have lunch to go to school. We know that uh, Canadians, Albertans, Calgarians are doing all kinds of things and going to food banks is a last resort. And you talk to food banks right across the country. Like, there's no sector of the country that's missing out on this, right? It's hitting everybody everywhere in Canada. Unfortunately, it is. I mean, we all know that when we go to the grocery store, those fresh um, uh, fruits and vegetable options are more and more expensive. Well, that trickles right down to food banks because we purchase a lot of items to make sure that we have good quality content in our hampers. And those costs haven't gone down for us either. Let's talk about your experience at the Calgary Food Bank. Um, The demand, how much of an increase are you seeing? Well, in the first five months of this year, we've seen a 26% increase in visits. Not 26, but when you're helping hundreds and thousands a week, that's a lot of people in the last uh, five months. In April alone, we provided food to over 24,000 people compared to 19,000 in April of 2021. Are they all brand new faces, people you've never seen before? Unfortunately, they are. I mean, usually food bank, when somebody reaches out to a food bank, it's the first time they've reached out to any social service. But the great thing is all food banks say most of their clients ever have come one, two, three times. They get a hamper for every member of the family for a week's worth of food that gets them over the crisis so that they can carry on. Um. Is this just the start, do you think? I mean, we keep hearing more, a recession in the future. We're going to see more interest rate hikes, inflation continuing to rise. So are you anticipating that we're sort of at the beginning or maybe the middle of this, but certainly not at the end? We're certainly not at the end, and we're all forecasting an increase in, uh, especially this summer, in visits. And those trends do not account for inflation and the rising costs and the supply chain issues. So we're all forecasting and budgeting and watching the numbers, but we know that this trend is not on a decline. 
Uh, I guess the question is, will you be able to meet this growing demand? I mean, I would imagine, you know, not only is it being pinched on your end, but the donations you typically would get, people would have a harder time affording those. So it's a vicious circle. Will you be able to keep up with the demand you anticipate? Well, so far we are able in Calgary to keep up with the demand. Our donations are still on par with years previous. But we know that whether you're donating time, food or funds, Canadians are exhausted, and we really want to make sure that they know that the impact of whether they're giving a can of tuna or a dollar that we can leverage into $5, you're going to make an incredible impact in somebody's lives. And we're also working so closely with food industry to make sure that we get these quality items before their best before date so we can get them into the homes of people who need it. So I guess the call to action, what are you looking for? What can people do to help you out? You know, the great thing about food banks is that you can donate however you want. If actually putting that can of tuna in a donation bin in the grocery store gives you that great feeling, or if you buy something that you love, buy it for another family, or even if you uh, send funds, knowing that we can leverage that into more food, however you choose to give, you'll make a huge impact. Um, Shauna, thank you so much for your time this morning, and best of luck. We'll check in as uh, as we go along, and hopefully uh, everybody gets what they need. But it's gonna be it's gonna be a big lift. So uh, thanks so much for your time. Oh, thanks for helping getting the message out. You bet that Shauna Ogston with Calgary Food Bank, and as as she said, you know, I mean the 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 need for help from you, if you're in a position to help, uh, has probably never been higher. But you know, she's from Calgary Food Bank. I don't care where you are, where you're listening to this right now. Your local food bank is in the very same position. Uh, demand up dramatically right across the board. And at the same time, you know, the people that they rely on for donations, uh, are, you know, some of them may have had to make their own decisions and they can't donate as much or at all, you know, uh, compared to what they have done in the past. So it's it's tough. And, and the worst part of this is, as we talked about in the interview, is we're not at the end of this. This isn't the tail end. The anticipation is inflation will continue to go up. We know Interest rates will continue to go up. And then on top of that, uh, now we're hearing more and more talk about a recession looming in our future. I mean, there's more stories about that in the media today. So that's something that we're going to have to talk about in the coming days. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.